and I uh, need you to have your Bibles in hand. We're going to dive into God's Word today. Sound good? Amen. Amen. I was just upstairs a few minutes ago, and we got a bunch of kids here today. That's an awesome thing. So uh, young families and grandparents who brought those kids and grandkids today, we are so excited. Good job. And those kids are going to be blessed by the Word today, as we'll be blessed by the Word down here. Amen? Amen. So we've got Barry coming down the aisle. He's got some Bibles. We always want you to have a copy of the Word of God in hand. Never take the preacher's word for it. See for yourself what God's Word teaches. So just put your hand up. Barry's usually very fast. So just keep that hand up. He'll get you that Bible. If perhaps you missed a bulletin on the way in, inside that bulletin there's some message notes. And uh, we'd love for you to pull those out as well with a pen or pencil. So you can jot down some notes, fill in some blanks along the way. So uh, let him know by raising your hand if you need those message notes also. So we're going to be in John chapter 8 in just a few moments as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the gospel of John. Has this uh, series been a blessing to you? Amen. Amen. So that's such a great book, and today is one of my favorite passages in the whole book of John. So we'll be in uh, John 8 in just a few moments as we continue our Come and See message series. Well, I heard a story this last week about Napoleon. Whenever I say Napoleon, I, I automatically think of Napoleon Dynamite, one of the greatest movies ever made. But anyway... Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, the great emperor of France, uh, when he was emperor at the time, you know, several hundred years ago, uh, he had a woman come to him begging for the life of her son who was scheduled to be executed. And so she came asking for a pardon for her son. And Napoleon knew the case. And he said, ma'am, your son is a two-time offender. He's committed this crime twice. Justice demands that he be killed. And she said, well, sir, I didn't ask for justice. I asked for mercy. And he said, ma'am, your son doesn't deserve mercy. To which she responded, that's why they call it mercy. Of course he doesn't deserve mercy. That's what makes mercy, mercy. I'm not asking for justice. I'm begging you, please have mercy on my son. And he said, you have asked for mercy. Mercy your son shall receive. Your son is free to go. And her son was released. The word of God says that mercy triumphs over judgment. And today in John chapter 8, we're going to see the indescribable, inestimable value of the mercy of Jesus Christ on full display. And I think it's going to be a blessing to you. This is probably my favorite passage in all the book of John. It is such a great passage. It's ministered to me. It's encouraged me over the years, and I believe it'll minister to you and encourage you as well. Amen? Amen. So we're going to be in John chapter 8 in a moment, but before we dive into the passage, we do have to ask a very important question, and the question goes like this. Was it a mistake for this passage to be placed in the Bible? You guys are jumping to the answer way too quickly. John 8, look above the chapter in your Bible. It's one of the reasons we need you to have a copy of the Bible in your hand. You'll probably notice in your Bible that there is a little disclaimer above chapter 7, verse 53, the final verse in chapter 7, right before verse 1 of chapter 8. There's a little disclaimer. If you have the NIV translation like I'm reading out of today, that disclaimer in the NIV reads like this. The earliest manuscripts, if we can put that up, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 through 8:11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7:36 or after John 21:25, Luke 21:38 or Luke 24:53. Well, what on earth does that mean? Well, as most of you probably know, we do not have the original piece of parchment that John wrote this gospel account on. He wrote this sometime in the first century, so the better part of 2,000 years ago. Parchment doesn't last a terribly long time. So we don't have the original. We have copies that were done in the centuries following the original writing. The same is true for every other book of the New Testament. We do not have an original manuscript for any of the 27 books of the New Testament. And so if you've never studied ancient documents, your first reaction may be, oh, no, we don't have the original. We just have copies. But archaeologists and literary experts don't worry about this because that's the case with any ancient document. A couple quick examples. Homer wrote a couple famous books, the 
Iliad and the Odyssey. You've probably touched on those a little bit, elementary or high school, in your literature class. And so the Odyssey and the Iliad, if I remember correctly, the closest copy we have to the original date of writing is almost a thousand years removed. And no archaeologist or literary expert ever questions whether or not the Odyssey and the Iliad are accurately copied over the centuries. Because that's just normal for ancient documents. And so when it comes to the New Testament, something that's kind of cool with the New Testament, compared to other ancient books, there are more copies closer to the original date of writing by far than any other ancient document. There are actually over 20,000 pieces of the New Testament that we have copies of from the first 900 years of Christianity. That's unheard of with any other ancient document. And some of these pieces of the New Testament actually date to within 150 years of the original writing. There's no other document in the world like the New Testament. Amen? Amen. It's so cool. And so you look at these documents, when it comes to our modern translations, one of the reasons we can in good conscience say this is the Word of God is because of how careful those that have made copies have done it over the centuries. And when we have a modern translation, whether it's the NIV or the New King James or the uh, CEV translation, any of these modern translations, what they prefer to do is have manuscripts to work off of with the translation that date as closely to the original writing as possible. They want the oldest manuscripts they can find. And so when it comes to finding those oldest manuscripts, what we find is there are several hundred that contain this passage we'll be looking at today, but they're not in the earliest manuscripts. When it comes down to what you look at this passage, 7, uh, John 7, 53 through 8, 11, the earliest of these documents is at the end of the 4th century. So you do the math real quickly, end of the 4th century, so that's about... 350 years removed from the original writing of the Gospel of John. And so as we look at these early documents, the earliest ones do not contain this passage at all. And so three quick questions we need to answer. Number one, did John write this account? The honest answer is he probably didn't. Because as we look at the earliest editions we have of the book of John, this passage isn't in it. Now, I tend to think that there is a really good chance that John wrote this passage, but just like any writer, not everything goes into the final book, right? I'm finishing up my book on the Proverbs right now. Anytime I write a book, you go back and look at the notes, there's stuff I did not include because you just don't have time for it. So John very well may have written this, but he didn't put it in his original gospel account. So he probably didn't write it, at least in his original version of the gospel of John. Second question, did the account actually happen? And everybody says, yes, this is definitely a historical account of what Jesus did when he was there in the temple courts visiting Jerusalem during his ministry years. Third question, was it a mistake to put this passage in the Bible? And everyone now can answer It was not a mistake to put in the Bible. Here's the thing. So it may not have been in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John, but we do find it in many later manuscripts. And you look at what the early church fathers said about this passage. They refer to it very clearly as a historical event that happened. And the early church fathers believed that this was Scripture and God wanted it to be in the Bible. They just didn't quite know where to put it. And so some put it at the end of the Gospel of John, kind of as an addendum. Some put it in the Gospel of Luke. They didn't know exactly where it fell, but they knew it was inspired by God. It was Scripture. And so as we study this passage today, just kind of bear in mind, there's a good chance John himself didn't write it, but this is the Word of God. This is Scripture, just like every other Scripture we study here at Impact. Amen? And so with that disclaimer taken care of, John chapter 8, we'll be starting in verse 1. Say amen if you're there. Here we go, beginning in verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand in front of the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. 
When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. May God bless us as we study his word today. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you've given us in your word today. Speak to our minds and hearts. Transform us by the mercy of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's start in verse 2 here. John tells us that at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. I want you to consider the perseverance of Jesus Christ. It was just last weekend that several of us gathered at Towns End here at the backside of Apple Valley for Alan's annual Perseverance Conference, and we got to hear a lot about perseverance. And I want you here with this passage to consider the perseverance of the most persevering man who's ever walked the earth, Jesus Christ. Consider his perseverance. Consider what's happened over the past six months or so. It's been about if this did happen at the Feast of Tabernacles, at that point Jesus was about six months away from being arrested and nailed to the cross. So at this point, it was about six months since Jesus had given those tough teachings about eat my flesh and drink my blood as he taught there in Galilee, just a day after he had fed the 5,000. And we read there in John chapter 7 that after Jesus had this teaching, a number of his disciples threw up their hands and said, I'm done. And they abandoned Jesus. They turned and they walked away. They deserted him, never to follow him again. And so as Jesus is giving this teaching, it hasn't been that long since a lot of his disciples, a lot of his followers turned around and deserted him. It was just maybe a day or two earlier that Jesus, during that Feast of Tabernacles, had been accused of being a liar by some in the crowd. They said, ah, he deceives the people. Others in the crowd had said, Jesus, you're demon-possessed. They'd actually said that in John 7. And then we know that the temple leaders, the Leaders of the Jews had sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. So think about this. Jesus shows up first thing in the morning at the temple courts, even though a lot of his followers had already deserted him. People in the crowd were calling him a liar or demon-possessed. He knew full well that the religious leaders wanted to arrest him, and they didn't want to just arrest him. We know they wanted to kill him. All of this is going on, yet he shows up to teach the people anyway. If that's not perseverance, I don't know what is. Literally... His life is hanging in the balance, and he goes to teach the people anyway. At some point during the teaching, he's interrupted by the teachers of the law and some Pharisees. We read beginning in verse 6 that they bring, excuse me, beginning in verse 3, that they bring to Jesus this woman caught in the act of adultery. They force her to stand in front of the group of people Jesus is teaching. They They say to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? You can just almost hear the snarkiness in their voice. Almost just picture them, arms crossed, noses in the air. (laughs) We got him this time. We got him this time. Now, being first thing in the morning, there are any number of things they could have brought Jesus. What do you like first thing in the morning? Yeah. Who thought about bringing Jesus a cup of coffee? He's there first thing in the morning. They don't bring him a cup of coffee, maybe a donut. I'm not a big coffee drinker, so you know, bring me a donut maybe first thing. They don't bring Jesus a donut. They don't bring him an Egg McMuffin. They don't bring him the most popular drink at Starbucks. Do you know what the most popular drink at Starbucks is? Coffee. <laughs> it's actually not regular coffee. What's the most popular drink at Starbucks? Come on, ladies, here's your chance. Frappuccino, you're getting closer. Not pumpkin spice. Ah, oh, here we go. Yep, Summer's got it. An iced caramel macchiato, best-selling drink at Starbucks. They don't bring Jesus an iced caramel macchiato. None of these things any of us would like to have first thing in the morning. Instead, they say, top of the morning to you, Jesus. We brought you a little surprise. Here's a woman caught in the act of adultery. Well, good morning to you, too. Thank you so much. What a wonderful thing, first thing in the morning. That's what they do. And immediately, as we begin reading about this, 
And the little disclaimer that the gospel writer gives us that this was a trap, immediately we've got these red flags waving in our minds, don't we? There are three things, probably more than this, but at least three things that smell really fishy about this whole woman caught in adultery scene. Number one is the timing. So it's just been a day or so since they had sent the Jewish temple guards to arrest Jesus. And they weren't able to arrest him. Remember, the guards went back in John 7, and the Pharisees were asking him, well, where's Jesus? We told you to go arrest him. And they says, well, we've never heard anyone teach like him. And so they come back empty-handed, and so they wanted to arrest Jesus, and so the timing just seems way too perfect here. They were looking for a reason to trap Jesus in what he said and in what he did so that they would have grounds to arrest him. And so it just seems a little bit too fishy that they found this woman in the act of adultery at the perfect time to arrest Jesus. The second thing we notice is the absence of the man. (laughs) Did you notice that? The woman is caught in the act of adultery, and all of God's children ask, where's the dude? She was not caught in the act of adultery by herself. There was obviously a man involved. Where's the guy? Where's the man? We don't know exactly. Scripture doesn't tell us. Maybe they paid him off. Keep your mouth shut. The woman's all we need. You go on your way. Get out of here. Interesting. There's no man to be found. Number three is the question itself. Notice that the question they asked Jesus is a lose-lose question. We're going to talk about that for a few moments. It's a lose-lose question. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Now, if you go back to the Old Testament law, you'll find this in Deuteronomy chapter 22, beginning in verse 22. This is part of the law of Moses, part of the 613 laws of Moses that was given to ancient Israel. This was the law in ancient Israel. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must what? They must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. If a man happens to meet in a town, a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. Isn't that sweet? That was the law in ancient Israel. It's pretty clear, isn't it? If a man and woman are found guilty of adultery, stone them to death. That was the law in ancient Israel. That was God's just punishment, they said, for sin, the sin of adultery. Now, that being the case, the religious leaders knew when they asked Jesus the question, what what should we do with this woman caught in the act of adultery? If he said, you shouldn't stone her, then they would accuse him of breaking the law of Moses. Bring in the temple guards, arrest Jesus, because he's advocating breaking the law of Moses. He's breaking Jewish law. So if Jesus says, well, Moses is right, you should stone the woman, you should stone the woman, they would say, aha, you're now breaking Roman law because they knew that in that day they were being occupied by Roman troops. And Rome had a little law when it came to capital punishment. And Rome's law went like this. The Jewish people have no authority or right to execute anyone without Roman permission. So if Jesus were to say, take her out and stone her, they would say, Roman guards, come on over here and rest him because he's advocating breaking Roman law. So if he says, don't stone her, he's breaking Jewish law. If he says, do stone her, he's breaking Roman law. And on top of that, if he says stone her, he's going to lose all sorts of followers because for the last three years, Jesus has been going throughout Israel, preaching a message of mercy and grace and forgiveness. So imagine after three years of preaching a message of mercy and grace and forgiveness to say, stone the woman. He's going to lose all credibility and he's going to have even more followers turn around. So these Pharisees and teachers of the law were so excited because Jesus could not answer this question correctly. It was a lose-lose situation for Jesus. No matter how he answers it, he's going to be arrested today. Can't you just taste it, boys? Victory is at our beck and hand. Oh, can't you taste victory, boys? It's going to happen today. Or so they thought. Chuck Swindoll says it this way. It was a perfect trap. To honor God's law, Jesus would incur the wrath of Rome. To submit to Roman law, Jesus would have to ignore the law of God. Well, Jesus finds himself in a real pickle, doesn't he? 
But how he responds to this lose-lose question is absolute genius. Notice how he responds. In verse 6, he doesn't answer their question right away. Instead, he does something really strange. Instead of answering their question, he bends down and starts doodling in the dirt. Index finger probably, doodling in the dirt. And he's doodling in the dirt, I'm guessing, for at least a minute or two. And they're getting a little frustrated. And I want you to put yourself in the Pharisees and teachers of the law's shoes and imagine how frustrated you would be in this situation. You've just asked Jesus this question. Imagine if you came to me after a service and you were asking me an important question and it looked like I was paying attention. It looked like I was listening. But as soon as you finish asking your question, you notice I bend down and start scribbling on the ground. I'm not saying word one to you. I'm just scribbling on the ground. Do you think you would find that a little odd? Maybe a little rude? Hello, I asked you a question, Pastor. You might even think I've got a few screws loose. Well, you already knew I had a few screws loose. You might think I have a few extra. Uh, Teresa, you don't have to agree to that so much. You might think I have a few extra screws loose because I asked him a question and he's playing in the dirt. Is he doing tic-tac-toe? What's he doing down there? And so they're getting a little frustrated. Imagine if you were a teacher of a high school class and it comes that time of semester for midterms. You're giving midterms to your class. Everyone's seated at their desk. All of a sudden, one of the kids, halfway through the midterm, gets out of his chair and starts bending down and scribbling on the carpet. Are you going to be happy about that as a teacher? Get your butt back in that chair, kid. You're not going to be happy about that. You're going to be ticked off. So imagine how frustrated these teachers of the law are. They knew they had Jesus right where they wanted him, and he's not saying a single word to him. He's doodling the dirt. So they start getting pretty frustrated. And so they start peppering him with more questions. Come on, Jesus. Come on, Jesus. Saying something like, I don't know. This isn't the United States of America. You can't plead the fifth. We asked you a question. You've got to answer it. We don't have all day, Jesus. Come on. Time's a ticking. We asked you a question. Give us an answer. Give us an answer. We don't have all day. They're getting frustrated. Verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin... Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Verse 8, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, for the last 2,000 years, curious Christians have asked the question, what did Jesus write in the dirt? Wouldn't you like to know? Me too. So we look through the chapter. What was that? Inquiring minds want to know. You look in Scripture and, oh, no, Scripture doesn't tell us. And so over the last 2,000 years, we can't even call them theories because they can't be tested. Christians have speculated. They've come up with ideas of what the doodling in the dirt was. I'll give you a couple of those ideas that I think are pretty good. The first was by one of my favorite professors in Bible college, Dr. Nopal Staten. And Dr. Staten had this idea about what happened here. He says they asked him the question, This woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law. Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? He suggests that Jesus bent down the first time and started writing in the dirt different kinds of sins that are identified in the Old Testament. Lying, stealing, bearing false witness, disobeying your father and mother, lust. They keep peppering Jesus with questions. Come on, Jesus, we don't have all day. Answer the question. Jesus straightens up after writing those sins in the dirt and says, let him who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. Bends down the second time, and now he writes the names of every one of the accusers standing there next to the secret sin that Jesus knew they had committed in their hearts. And so as they're peeking over Jesus' shoulder to see what he's writing in the dirt, they see the sin. At first, it doesn't prick their conscience, but then they see their name right next to that sin, and they start saying to themselves, "Uh uh-oh, I didn't know anybody knew about that. And they drop their stones and quietly turn and walk away, beginning with the oldest. Interesting idea. There's another idea that I think has a lot of merit to it, and it goes like this. The first time Jesus knelt down and wrote in the dirt with his finger, he wrote part of the 10th commandment. How many of you memorized the 10 commandments as kids? Okay. Do you remember the 10th commandment? You shall not covet. Okay. 
You shall not covet is the 10th commandment, but God gives specifics in that 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's possessions, or your neighbor's wife. Hmm. Possibly the first time Jesus wrote, he wrote that part of the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. He stands up and says, let him who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. And then possibly wrote the second time the names of the accusers next to that 10th commandment. Knowing that those teachers of the law knew that according to Old Testament law, when it came time to pick up a stone and carry out that capital punishment, you were never allowed to be the one to throw the stone if you personally had committed that same sin. There were three sins in particular that brought the death penalty in Old Testament Israel. Idolatry, worshiping idols, number two, murder, and three was adultery. And so if you were an idol worshiper, you would never have a stone placed in your hand to be part of the stoning brigade to stone someone who was caught in idolatry. If you yourself were a murderer, you would never be handed a stone to throw stones at the guy who was being executed for murder. And if you were an adulterer yourself, you would never be handed a stone to be a participant in the execution of someone who's caught in the act of adultery. And so quite possibly when Jesus writes that part of the 10th commandment in the dirt, everyone's conscience kind of lights up that's holding a stone. All of those accusers, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount had made it very clear. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you have committed adultery in your mind and heart by committing lust... In God's eyes, you have committed adultery already. And so Jesus, in essence, if this is what happened, is saying to the crowd and specifically to the accusers, you may not be guilty of physically committing adultery, but God knows and I know that you have committed adultery many times in your heart. You have no right to throw a stone at this woman. You have no right to accuse this woman because what she has done physically, you have done many times in your head and in your heart. Spiritual adultery. To God is adultery. And so could it be that each of them felt embarrassed, hopefully also convicted. They dropped their stones and they walked away. Verse 9, at this, these who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And I love this last part. It's just Jesus and the woman. Jesus stands back up, verse 10, and asks her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And then probably with tears rolling down her cheeks, she says, No one, sir. No one. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus answered. Go and leave your life of sin. In James 2.13, James tells us, Mercy triumphs. Over judgment. Say that with me. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Tell the person next to you, mercy triumphs over judgment. And then in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 7, Jesus tells us, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Amen. Amen. There's no doubt that Jesus Christ has called his followers to offer mercy to the people around us who desperately need but do not deserve the mercy of God. God has called us to give mercy to those around us who desperately need but do not deserve your mercy. They desperately need but do not deserve my mercy. But God has called us to give them mercy anyways because that's what makes mercy mercy. I want to share with you four lessons that we can pull from this account today. Four lessons I believe Jesus is teaching us about showing mercy. Here we go. Lesson number one. No one deserves a second chance. But Jesus enjoys giving us one anyway. Isn't that good? Say that with me. No one deserves a second chance, but Jesus enjoys giving us one anyway. I love that. Amen. I enjoy playing a good round of golf. Anyone else like to play golf out there? All three of you. That's wonderful. So I played soccer for nine years all the way through my sophomore year in high school. I got tired of soccer, so I took up golf. So I love playing a good round of golf. The problem is I rarely play a good round of golf. So if you've ever played golf, it's one of the most frustrating games on the planet. And what happens is you have a couple good shots in a row and you start to think, you know what, I I think I'm in my groove now. 
And, and you go for your third shot and you shank it into a bush. And so sometimes if I'm playing with a friend that is nice <laughs> or a family member who's kind, they'll say the magic words after I shank one into the bush. Dane, go ahead and take a mulligan. How many of you know what a mulligan is? Yeah, mulligan is a do-over. So if I've just shanked the ball into the bush, a mulligan means someone says, you know, Dane, go ahead and take a mulligan. I get to reach into my pocket and pull out another golf ball, drop it in front of me, and I go for it again, man. I'm going for that shot. And almost always when I take a mulligan, that do-over has a much better result than the first one. It may not be Jack Nicholson or anything. Jack Nicholson, you don't play golf. Jack Nicholas, excuse me. May not be Tiger Woods, but it's a lot better than the first one. I want to ask you, how many of you would like the privilege in life to have a mulligan for your mouth? And all God's people raise their hand on that one. Man, we, we need a mulligan for our mouth. Sometimes something comes out of our mouth and it's like, shank. <laughs> That wasn't quite right. And so we'd love to go back and have some words retracted, we've said, right, and be able to have a do-over. How many of you would like a mulligan for your actions? Some things you've done in life that you wish you hadn't done? Maybe some moments when <laughs> moments God gave you a, a golden opportunity to do something that you should have done in the moment and you chickened out and you wish you could go back and actually do what God had called you to do in the first place? We'd like mulligans in life. We'd like do-overs, but we don't have... That wonderful privilege, do we? We don't. Uh, Louisa Fletcher was an early 20th century writer and poet. She wrote these words. I think she said it so well. How I wish that there was some wonderful place called the land of beginning again, where all our mistakes and all our heartaches and all our poor selfish grief could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never put on again. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, here in the real world, there is no such thing as the land of beginning again. However, Jesus offers us the second best thing. The word of God says, he who is in Christ is a new creation. Amen. The old is gone. The new has come. And Jesus not only can take care of the repercussions eternally of the sins of your past, words, actions, and thoughts, Jesus Christ beginning today can transform the way that you speak and the way that you act and the choices that you make. So you cannot go back and redo. There's no time machine. But you can get the second best thing through Christ, the opportunity to beginning today, do it right. And I hope all of us take that opportunity. He is the God of second chances, isn't he? Say that with me. Jesus Christ is the God of second chances. Altogether, Jesus Christ is the God of second chances. Amen. Lesson number two. Legalists prefer to condemn. Jesus prefers to forgive. Say that with me. Legalists prefer to condemn. Jesus prefers to forgive. As I was studying for today's message, the insights of William Barclay really struck me. I think he does such a great job depicting for us the stark contrast between the way Jesus treated this woman caught in adultery and the way the religious leaders treated her. Barclay writes these words. He says, This incident shows vividly and cruelly the attitude of the scribes and Pharisees to people. They were not looking on this woman as a person at all. They were looking on her only as a thing, an instrument whereby they could formulate a charge against Jesus. They were using her. They were using her as a person might use a tool. For their own purposes. To them, she had no name, no personality, no feelings. She was simply a pawn in the game whereby they sought to destroy Jesus. It's extremely unlikely that these religious leaders even knew this woman's name. To them, she was nothing but a case of shameless adultery that could now be used as an instrument to suit their purposes. The minute people become things, the spirit of Christianity is dead. I want you to hear those last words again. The minute people become things, the spirit of Christianity is dead. Ouch. And it's very easy for me to point a finger at the religious leaders and say, man, those guys are a bunch of mess ups. If only they were as righteous as I am. You guys know me well, huh? <laughs> 
man, I am a screw up. I cannot point fingers at them without looking in the mirror and saying, Lord, I think you're asking me to ask myself some hard hitting questions. And so I, I look at those statements of William Barclay and I have to ask myself questions like this. Do I in any way treat hurting sinners like the Pharisees treated hurting sinners? Do I in any way treat them as an instrument to suit my own purposes? Do I somehow use them as a person might use a tool? Do I in any way view sinners simply as a pawn in the game? I certainly hope not. Friends, when we're, we start preferring condemnation over forgiveness, you're walking in the footsteps of the Pharisees. When you really savor the thought of someone getting what's coming to them, when you relish the thought of someone being condemned, instead of repenting and turning to Christ and experiencing mercy, you're walking more in the footsteps of the Pharisees than in the feet of Christ. We have to walk in the footsteps of Christ. Jesus Christ has forgiveness as the path that he has set for us. Forgiveness is the path of Christ. Hadn't planned on saying this, but maybe one of you need to hear this today. Over the years of being a pastor, and I've been a pastor now a little over 24 years, I've continued to be amazed by how many Christians will hold grudges and resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness, not just against Joe Schmo out there, but against their own brother or sister or parent or ex-spouse. If you follow Christ, you have to forgive. It's not an option. And maybe this is the one thing that God brought you into this room to hear today. You must forgive. You must be an agent of mercy. Well, my brother doesn't deserve mercy. Yeah, I know. That's what makes it mercy. My ex-wife doesn't deserve mercy. I know. That's what makes it mercy. You don't know what my dad did to me, Pastor. I don't need to know what your dad did to you. He doesn't deserve your mercy. But God's called you to give it to him anyway. Lesson number three. Jesus' mercy comes with this implied warning. If you reject my mercy, one day you will suffer God's wrath. This is a, this is a pretty simple, logical line of progression. So follow me on this. Mercy triumphs over judgment, right? We, we all agree on that. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So if you reject Christ's mercy, what is left for you? Right there. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You remove mercy from the equation. All that's left is judgment. Pretty simple, logical chain right there, right? And so make no mistake about it. Jesus Christ came to bring us mercy, the mercy of God, forgiveness. That's why he died on the cross to offer us mercy. But if you choose, like most people on this planet choose, not to accept the mercy of Christ, God has no other alternative but to allow you to have the judgment that you've chosen instead. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In a sense, God never sends anyone to hell. He prepared hell for the devil and his angels. Hell was created for the devil and his demons. But those who end up there will be those who rejected the opportunity to take hold of the mercy of Jesus. God is a merciful God, but he's also a God of justice. If you reject his mercy, there's only one thing left for you. And that's his justice. And I would urge every one of you to take hold of the mercy of God while there is still time. While there is still time. Notice what Jesus says here. He says, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Interesting. Some people will look at this account of Jesus and say, Jesus was soft on sin here. But I want you to look at that again. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Notice what Jesus didn't say that he could have said. He didn't say, then neither do I condemn you. Try to do better next time. Or at least next time, if you're going to get together with your shack up, honey, uh, make sure that you don't get caught. Jesus didn't say that, right? 
If you decide to get together with a, another lady's husband, next time, maybe just stop with some heavy kissing, but don't go any further than that. You know, don't go all the way with, with, that, uh, with that guy next time. Jesus doesn't say any of those things. What does he say? Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. He doesn't have any of this mamsy pamsy. Try to do better next time. You're only human. I know you're not having a good marriage at home. I get it. None of that stuff. He's not soft on sin. He says, leave your life of sin. In other words, I will give you mercy, but you need to walk away from your sin. I'll give you mercy, but you need to walk away from your judgment. You need to walk away from the wrath that's coming your way if you continue in the path that you're going. Leave your life of sin. He is in no way being soft on sin. He is being hard on sin, making it clear that she needs a fresh, fresh start and a complete break with her life of sin. Which leads us to number four. When legalists see miserable sinners, Jesus sees potential saints. Read that with me. When legalists see miserable sinners, Jesus sees potential saints. Isn't that good? In 1862, French author Victor Hugo wrote one of the most famous novels of all time. You've all heard it, Les Miserables. Over the last hundred years, it's been republished multiple times. It's been turned into multiple stage productions, movies, feature-length films. It's a beautiful story about a man named Jean Valjean. He was the son of a poor woodchopper, and at a very young age, Valjean's dad passed away, and so Valjean grew up as an orphan. And growing up as an orphan, he had to fend for himself, and at the age of 17, his older sister Her husband died, and so Valjean was given the responsibility to be man of the house. He had to provide for the seven children of his older sister. And he didn't have a job that paid that much. How was he going to feed seven kids that weren't even his own? He tried hard, but he just couldn't make enough money. And so one night when the kids were screaming for food because they were so hungry, Valjean went out during the night, took his fist, and busted through the window of the local baker, and he stole a loaf of bread. Well, the next day, the authorities showed up. They saw his bloody fist from where he'd punched through the window. They knew he had stolen the bread. And they arrested him and put him in a hard labor camp for five years. Five different times he tried to escape. And so every time he tried to escape, they added three years to his sentence. So by the time he was released, he had been in the hard labor camp for 19 years. 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread. He was released, and by the time he was released, he was a changed man. He was hardened by that time in prison. He hated the world. He hated everyone. He thought everyone was out to get him. And so as he went from town to town and his anger and his hatred was written all over his face, no one would help Valjean. Finally, he gets to a town and a bishop by the name of Muriel invites him in, feeds him dinner and allows him to spend the night. But after Muriel fell asleep, Jean Valjean got up during the night and he stole Bishop Muriel's silver forks and his knives threw him into a bag and escaped into the night. Well, the authorities caught up with him. The next morning, they knock on Muriel's house, knock on his door and say, we got your silverware back. We know this man stole your forks and knives. And everyone was blown away by Bishop Muriel's response. He said, no, he didn't steal my knives and forks. I gave them to him as a gift. In fact, Valjean, why didn't you remember to take the silver candlesticks? I gave you those as well. And Bishop Muriel dismissed the authorities. They walked out the door dumbfounded. And there Valjean stood in front of the bishop in stunned silence. And he asked the question, is it true? Am I really a free man? Am I really free to go? And Bishop Muriel said, yes, you're free to go, but make sure you don't forget your candlesticks. (laughs) And then he said this, Jean Valjean, my brother, you belong no longer to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of hate, and I give it to God. Now, Bishop Muriel's theology was a little bit screwy there, but the point's well taken. Sometimes when we hold the resentment and bitterness and choose the path of judgment against the person in front of us that truly deserves judgment, 
When we hold that judgment against him, at times we keep them from experiencing the grace and mercy of God. And what Bishop Muriel did was he removed his participation in judgment so Valjean could see clearly the mercy of God. And at the end of the book, at the end of the movie, Valjean is on his deathbed. And as he's lying on his deathbed, just a few feet from his head are two familiar objects, the silver candlesticks that he had held on to all those years that had reminded him of the mercy of God. Sometimes God gives you an opportunity to make it very clear to someone that they deserve wrath, that they deserve judgment. But God has called you and me to be agents of mercy. Jesus' mercy came running to you. Aren't you grateful for that? His mercy came to you. You didn't deserve it, but he gave it to you anyway. And he has appointed you to pass on that same mercy to those around you. Say, well, they don't deserve it. Well, I know. That's why they call it mercy. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for being a God of second chances. Help us to walk in obedience to your commands. To offer mercy as you have offered mercy to us. To offer forgiveness as you have offered forgiveness to us. To offer grace as you have offered grace to us. Lord, I pray against any bitterness, any resentment, and any unforgiveness that's being harbored in the hearts of anyone in this room or anyone watching this broadcast. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would uproot those things, those destructive, hurtful things from our minds and hearts. Cleanse us of all of that and help us, Lord to walk in the truth that mercy triumphs over judgment. That you will bless those who are merciful because the merciful shall receive mercy. Lord Jesus, I pray if there's anyone here who has never experienced your mercy, who's never reached out and accepted you as Savior and Lord, that today they would make it the day of salvation, that they would say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. Please forgive me. Please come into my life, wash my sin away, and I will follow you. I will trust in you, and I will obey you for the rest of my life. I'm going to put you in the driver's seat of my life from this point forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week is Decision Sunday. If you've made a decision to accept Christ today, we're going to be up here in a moment. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you. We've got our prayer team that will be up here. If you know you've accepted Christ but haven't gotten baptized yet, we'd love to talk to you about getting baptized because that will be set up next week, that baptistry. I'm going to close the service with this. This song is older than I thought it was. I was thinking of this song with powerful lyrics about mercy this last week, and I thought of that song, Mercy, Come, mercy Came A-Running, by Phillips, Craig, and Dean. And I thought, yeah, that song's maybe 10 years old. I looked it up. It's 28 years old now. I'm starting to feel a lot older. came out in 95, and I love the chorus to this song. Isn't this so true when you think of God's mercy on your life? Mercy came a-running like a prisoner set free. Past all my failures to the point of my need. When the sin that I had carried was all I could see. When I could not see mercy. Mercy came a-running to me. Mercy came running to you through Christ. And you run and extend that mercy to those around you. God bless you. Let us know if you need prayer. If you're a first-time visitor, see us at the table. We've got a gift for you.